Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. This morning we will begin the exposition by reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, the Merciful Judge, part 1. Mark chapter 2, please follow along as I read from God's inspired words. Mark chapter 2. The evangelist has written, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was laying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again. By the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. With this account, Jesus enters into a new phase in his Galilean ministry. Up until now, everyone wanted to see Jesus, and all of those who were afflicted wanted to be touched by Jesus. He was so popular in Capernaum that he literally had to leave town. So he went around to the neighboring villages in Galilee, and as Mark 139 says, he went around preaching and casting out demons. So needless to say, Jesus was a busy man. Emphasis on man. He was a man. So he got tired. Just like you and I. Therefore, he needed periods of rest, like you and I, which I plan to do after church today. But his periods of rest, unlike ours normally, were very short-lived. Because there, there are always opportunities to deal with poor, poor, pitiful, sinful men. So this is where we pick up in John Mark's narrative in his gospel account. In the opening verses of Mark 2, 
we discover yet another piece of evidence that Jesus is both man and God. So far, we've seen a very authoritative side of Jesus, haven't we? His proclamation of the gospel was authoritative. His call to his disciples to drop everything and follow him was authoritative. We also learned that his teaching was authoritative, and it astonished everyone. Last week, we saw that he had authority over leprosy, the most feared disease and deadly disease in the first century. But that's not all we've seen so far. We've seen a very compassionate side of Jesus too, haven't we? He was moved with that deep-seated, bowel-level compassion for the leper. And he also demonstrated tender compassion towards Peter's mother-in-law. Today we'll see yet another perfect display of both divine authority and tenderness towards those with physical ailments. But, this is a big but, that's not the focus of Mark 2, 1 to 12. The focus is on Christ's position as the authoritative yet merciful judge. More astounding and more proving of Christ's person is not found in his power to heal. It's not found in his ability to extract demons out of a human vessel. It's not found in his ability to heal men stricken with leprosy. It's not found in his ability to tell a crippled man to walk again. The most proving evidence that we find is Christ's ability and his authority to grant eternal, once and for all forgiveness to guilty, wicked, hell-bound sinners. He is the only one who ever was and ever is and ever will be that can forgive sin. He's the only one. Therefore, since that is the absolute truth, all men must come to him in genuine faith alone. Or else, the Bible says, face the just wrath of God in heaven. So, uh, today on the Lord's Day at SV Bible Church, I have the pleasure. And you have the privilege of hearing Christ proclaimed as the exclusive forgiver of sins. The man through whom God will one day judge all men and women. Today I've been tasked by our master to preach about the divine authority that Jesus has to remove sins by grace through faith alone. And so my prayer for, for you today, for the converted saints here today, and for those who hear this message, is to be reminded and to be encouraged and uplifted by the mercy of Jesus. Our God is merciful. Our God is merciful. 
And because of that truth, we all must rejoice and live day by day with an attitude of gratitude because we have been recipients of mercy. And my prayer is for the unconverted sinner who may hear this message is to seek forgiveness by grace through faith in Christ alone. So our text today, it could be divided around four, no, five distinct characters. Five distinct characters we see in this snippet of Mark's revelation. All of whom play a different and distinct yet intentional and significant role in this account. There is something to learn from each one. And I trust the Holy Spirit will enable you, regardless of where you're at in your walk with God, regardless of age, regardless of maturity, I believe the Holy Spirit is powerful. And I believe the Holy Spirit can accomplish what He wants. And I believe He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life this morning through the exposition of this text. I trust that he will teach you by peering into this inspired account of Jesus granting merciful forgiveness to the least and undeserving in human society. This morning we're going to learn from the first three set of characters and the next time we'll learn from the last two, because you know me well enough to know that I can't possibly preach 12 verses in one sermon. So we're going to deal with the first five this morning. The first set of characters that we need to learn from in this account of Jesus' authority to forgive sin are the searching spectators in verse 12. Excuse me, verses 1 and 2. The searching spectators in verses 1 and 2. Go back to verse 1. It says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. He was at home. You say, well, I thought Jesus had no place to lay down his head. He didn't. Home was Peter's house in Capernaum. He's going back to where he started in the Gospel of Mark. He had just been on an extensive preaching tour, and having been forced to leave Capernaum due to the large crowds, he went to the outlaying villages to preach. Back in chapter 1, Mark records that people were coming to him from everywhere following his miracles. And so for an indefinite period of time, he goes out to preach, and then he goes back to Peter's house for some R&R, which served as his headquarters, his ministry headquarters. So we can't really say for sure how long Jesus was there. We can't, we can't say for sure how long he stayed at Peter's house before the crowd started to show up. And that detail doesn't matter because Mark doesn't tell us. But we can infer that it wasn't very long until many were gathered together at the door, Mark's, Mark comments. Many were gathered at the door. That's an understatement, isn't it? People were packed in and around Peter's house like sardines. In verse 2 it says, there was no longer room, not even near the door. So as good Bible interpreters, as good Bible interpreters, good Bible readers, and parents, you should be teaching your children these things, even right now. Ask, observe, ask questions of the text. Observe things. 
So you read verse 2 and you say, many. Who are the many? Well, again, you have to go back to the context, right? The many are primarily, mostly, those who consisted of inquisitive onlookers. Miracle seekers. In other words, they were just merely spectators. Surely, as one commentator noted, that there could have been some genuine followers mixed in the assembly, but they represented a small minority. So the many are the searching spectators. A spectator is what? Somebody who just came for a show, right? So why are these spectators there? What's, what's the big deal? Well, they're drawn by the curiosity. They're drawn by the fascination of Jesus' miracles. They're drawn by the fanfare, by the, by the commotion, and they want a front row seat to the best show in town. So they flock to the place of Jesus' rest. Unwelcomed, uninvited, they just show up. They were spiritually apathetic. And disinterested in becoming a disciple. But what does Jesus do? Again, just observe this. What does Jesus do? What would you do if a large crowd surrounded your house, packed inside, and you'd invite them? (laughs) What does Jesus do? He preaches to them. And that's one thing I love about Jesus, don't you? He ignored his listeners' worldliness. He ignored their spiritual blindness, their self-serving motives, and he kept on proclaiming the truth. Why? Why wouldn't he just tell them to go away? I need to rest. Why would he say, this ain't your house? Go about your business. Why wouldn't he do that? It's not just because Jesus was really kind. It's not just because Jesus was loving. It's because Jesus knew That the Father would draw out the elect from among them. He knew that through the vehicle of his spoken word, God's chosen would believe. Have you ever read John 6.37? It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The absolute sovereignty of God was the basis of Jesus' confidence in his success in his mission to preach. And so should it be for us. So should it be for us. It's been said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow which I lay down on at night. God will bring those whom he wants to himself through the word. That's how it worked in Jesus' day. That's how it works today. No matter how much opposition, no matter how much apathy that we see, no matter matter how many people try to shut us up, we must keep on preaching the word. Amen? And that's precisely what we see Christ doing here. Look at the last clause in verse 2. It says that he was speaking the word to them. What word? Well, the word in this con- in the context of teaching always, always means the word of God. He was speaking 
God's truth to the infiltrators in Peter's house. The second set of characters that we need to learn from this morning in this account of the Lord's authority to forgive sin is a sorrowful sinner. First, the searching spectators. Now look at the sorrowful sinner in verse 3. It says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet which the paralytic was lying. Now again, after reading these verses, there are two striking observations that just leap out of this text. It is leap out. First, notice, contrary to the leopard that we read about previously, okay, in chapter 1, contrary to him, this man was not shunned by Jewish society. That's important to get right here. He wasn't an outcast because he was not contagious. Yet he still would have looked, been looked down upon and looked at with great suspicion. Because of his physical state. Because you see, you may have heard this before, the Jews believed that if one was paralyzed, if one was wheelchair bound, he or she had sinned. To such a degree that they deserved it. Or he or she was paying for someone else's sin. Even the disciples had bad theology sometimes, didn't they? Even the disciples had this view. Do you remember John 9, where Jesus heals the man born blind? John 9, verse 2, he's, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And guess what Jesus says? He corrects their theology. In verse 3, he says, it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but listen to this. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that is a key text. That is a key text to help us wrestle with the tension between human suffering and God's sovereignty. I don't pretend it's easy to understand, but we can understand it to a degree. We have to accept and believe the plain reading of Scripture when it says that this man was born blind God was in control of that. He was born blind so that God may be glorified through him. So, but that wasn't the, the common belief. If you were blind, if you were crippled, if you were sick, well, you must have done something to make God really mad at you. That's why you were in that position. So all this is to say that while a paralytic wasn't forced to live in a lonely isolation like, like the leper, he was still nevertheless viewed as being a second-class citizen in a religious and social sense. 
The second observation that we must be that must we must observe here in this sorrowful sinner's position is that his friends, including himself, were determined. They were impressively determined. Note that his four friends were willing to go to great lengths to get him to Jesus. So far as to literally climb up on a roof and dig a hole. Isn't that weird? How in the world would they do that? Because we, we have to understand that homes built back then are not like the homes built today. Roofs back then, they were not built with plywood and asphalt or, or cedar or metal shingles. Back in Jesus' time, these, the typical house had a flat patio roof, which was accessible via an external staircase. And if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know that it gets extremely hot during the day, right? You don't you have to even go there to know that, right? But if you've been there, it's a different kind of hot, right? So, since it gets so hot there, the, what they would have accessible rooftops so they could go and sleep on the roof at night when it was really hot. It was the only way to escape the, the, the heat. These roofs, they were made of slabs of burnt or dried clay that were placed on supporting beams that stretched wall to wall. The builder would come and spread a uniform coat of fresh, wet clay over the, over the hardened slabs to create a seal for the water. So now think about this for a second now. You're, the paralytics, you're one of the four paralytic, paralytics friends that, that wants to help this brother out. You have to carry him upstairs onto a roof. You have to acquire the necessary tools. Then you have to start digging an opening large enough to lower a pallet through at the precise location. You see, so this, this wasn't just some, you know, spur of the moment, hey, we've got to get to Jesus, what are you going to do here? This, this took some coordination. This, this took some work. This took some determination. They were quite determined, wouldn't you agree? And so because of this undaunted determination displayed by these men, they finally get to Jesus. I would have loved to be a fly in the wall as that stretcher came down from the roof right in front of the preacher. No doubt the audience was shocked and somewhat annoyed Especially those who were sitting around Jesus, they would have had debris of clay falling on their heads, down their shirt. And as they were sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to see what was going to come of this uninvited vandalizer, Jesus does the most shocking thing yet. He looks at this man, and he says something that only God can say. And that brings us to the third character in this account of Jesus' authority to forgive sin. 
And that's the sympathetic Savior. Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I would venture to say that those are some of the sweetest words ever written. Not because of the word themselves, but because of who said them. What does that mean? Children, what does it mean to hear from Jesus, your sins are forgiven? Well, we could spend hours talking about this. We need to understand first that those words imply the need for forgiveness. Those words imply that this man did something to warrant the necessity of forgiveness. You wouldn't say to somebody, I forgive you, if they didn't do anything wrong, right? If someone came up to you that you didn't even know, and, and they said, sir, ma'am, I just want you to let know I forgive you. You'd be like, who are you? What did I do? But just, 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 just those words alone imply that you've got to make something right. Right? What did, this, what did this paralytic do? What is he guilty of? What were his personal sins? It doesn't matter. This man would have known that he was a sinner because of his conscience. The moral law was written on his heart, just like it is for all of us. One commentator said that conscience demands an atonement for our sins. Also, he would most likely would have known basic Old Testament theology, which repeatedly teaches that the human heart is desperately wicked. Have you ever read Genesis 6, verse 5? Which says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right, so it's not that we just messed up once or twice, right? It's, that's, that's all we ever did before Jesus was sin. So at the very least, he, this paralytic would have known those things. He... He would have also been somewhat influenced by the common view that he was being punished by God, but that didn't stop him from having great determination to get to Jesus. Whatever the case, he clearly saw himself as a guilty, spiritually disabled sinner in need of forgiveness. Because Jesus says, seen their faith. Seen their faith. What does that mean? Faith is not a tangible thing, is it? But Jesus, in his sovereign omniscience, as soon as he lays eyes on these men, he knows that they're genuine. He knows that they're not there for the fanfare. He knows that they're coming to seek from Jesus what's chiefly important. And that is forgiveness. That is forgiveness. Therefore, it's safe to say that this paralytic knew fully well that he needed a divine pardon. 
Not only because Jesus saw their faith, but look, this paralytic didn't argue, did he? He didn't seek to justify himself. He didn't ask questions. He didn't defend himself. He didn't claim innocence. He simply accepted the free pardon. Here's where we can all relate to this man. Few of us, some of us, a few of us can relate to his physical condition. But where is the ground level? It's level at the foot of the cross. We all can relate to this paralytic's spiritual condition. Can we not? We've all sinned. We are all in desperate need of forgiveness. And maybe you're tempted to say, Heitman, I know I'm a sinner. Why do you feel the need to remind us so often? And I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't shrink back and I don't fail to preach on sin often because I know how needy you are. I know that you forget how needy you are, how needy you are of grace and mercy, how needy you are for forgiveness. And when you forget that you're needy, you fail to depend on Christ. And when you fail to depend on Christ, you become prideful. And when you become prideful, you lose faith in God. Yes. Amen. And when you lose faith in God... We do what we naturally do. What do we do when we lose faith in God? We put faith in self. And we know if we put faith in self, knowing our hearts are wicked, where does that lead? It leads to ruin. So just, just as you experienced judicial forgiveness, doesn't mean that you don't need relational or parental forgiveness, Okay. Every single day. What's the difference? You guys ever heard of the difference between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness? Anybody heard of that before? Okay, how many, how many of you want to go to Bible college or seminary? Anybody ever want to go there? Okay, we're going to go right now. Judicial forgiveness is the forgiveness before salvation. It's the forgiveness needed, I should say, before salvation. It's what God gives us upon being saved by faith in Jesus Christ. All of our past, present, and future sins are forgiven on a judicial basis. Meaning that we will not suffer eternal judgment for our sins. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Okay? That's judicial, judicial forgiveness. That's when Christ declared you as righteous based on the work of Christ, credited to your account. Bam! Forgiven. There is therefore no more condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. So that can't be taken away. If you're truly saved, that cannot be taken away. Therefore, you can be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, whom after he got to the hill called Salvation, 
his burden rolled away, it disappeared, and he was able to walk straight towards the celestial city in full confidence and joy that he would see the king. Okay, that's judicial forgiveness. Now, what we call relational, parental, or familial forgiveness is likened to a reconciliation that takes place between two sinners. Like when children, children, listen to me, when you disobey your parents, you are chiefly disobeying God. But you are also sinning against your mommy and dad. And so that necessitates, first and foremost, forgiveness from God. But listen, children, it also necessitates forgiveness from your parents. It's the same with the children of God. When you sin, and we all do, don't we? We no longer have the fear of eternal punishment, but we do need to confess our sins to God and restore the broken fellowship. That's where 1 John 1, 9 applies. If we confess our sin, homo legeo, say the same thing about our sin, that means you agree with what you have done is wrong because that's what God says about it. If we confess our sins, then he will be faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a condition. And so, brothers and sisters, I preach to myself too. You need to confess your sin to God. Every day. Every day, confess your sin to God. Now, that doesn't mean that you go into your prayer closet and, and try to tirelessly keep track of every single little sin. That would be an impossible burden. That would be a burden too heavy to bear. You know, I'm reminded of Martin Luther, who gravely confused judicial forgiveness with parental forgiveness. And we know that he confused the two because, remember, when he became a monk, it, he said that if, if a monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Because he tortured himself. He beat himself. He starved himself. He nearly chilled himself to death because he was trying to atone for his own sin. his conscience was continually, incessantly condemning him. But then when he discovered Romans, and he said that just shall live by faith, and then he got to Romans 8, where it said, therefore is no, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He figured it out. So having the need to ask for forgiveness from God does not mean we're to live in fear of being condemned because Christ was condemned in our place. 
what it does mean. It does mean that we as believers need to have a regular, ongoing pattern, a habit of humbly going to the Lord in prayer so that we can restore that father-son, father-daughter relationship when we know we've violated his law. Now, how do you know you've sinned? Follow-up question? Fair question? You know you've sinned because you, number one, have God's Word. And number two, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role, partially, is to illuminate the Scripture to your mind and convict you of sin. Hence the need to know God's Word. So, when was the last time you confessed your sin to God? If it's been a while... Start developing a pattern of practicing 1 John 1 9. And your prayers, just like the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, forgive us our sins, right? That's a pattern, that's, that's a model. And I could go on and on and on about this theology of sin and theology of the Christian life with regard to prayer. But if, if, I must say, too, that if you are kind of in a spiritual lull, if you experience seasons of spiritual depression or, or discouragement, then it's possible, it's possible that you have unconfessed sin. Men, if your marriage is on the rocks, or when it does fall on the rocks, remember 1 Peter 3. Very very hard words to read for men. First Peter 3 says that your prayers will be hindered if you do not honor your wife. And if, so if, if that should provide some motivation to honor our wife. Secondly, we, we need to understand this word forgiveness. Because I, I think there is some, you know, misconceptions or kind of, you know, differing floating opinions about what forgiveness means. So let's allow this word to define it for us. The Greek word rendered forgiven literally had the idea of sending away, driving away, dismissing, or releasing. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. So that's the idea of the sin being released, driven out, driven away. And if something is driven away from your sight, out of sight, out of mind. So, when forgiveness is granted to someone, the forgiver has totally dismissed the sin to the extent that it will not be remembered anymore because it's gone. That means the forgiver will never use the wrongdoer's sin against them. Now, that should be comforting to us. To know that the ones whom God forgives will never again have their sin counted against them. You can, you can, you can be confident in that. Third, we need to understand what it means to be forgiven by God. 
Back to the paralytic here. As soon as the paralytic heard the words of Jesus, he received full, complete pardon. Granted to him by grace. That means it was apart from any works or any merit on part of the man. Jesus didn't say, what have you done? What do you have to offer me? His first words were, you are forgiven. So Jesus, with those words, obliterates his guilt. And at that very moment, the crippled sinner was delivered from a future of everlasting punishment. When Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, he was in effect saying, child, I will never remind you of your sin. I will never mention it to anyone. And I will never allow my mind to dwell on it because your sins are as far, as far away from me as the east is from the west. So when Jesus looked at this poor man, He looked at this determined paralytic. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. He was saying, my son, you know you've sinned. And you know you need me to drive away your sins so that I may no longer remember them and count them against you. And on that day, the day of judgment, you will not be condemned. That's what it means to be forgiven by God. And so I have a wonderful, inexplicable amount of joy to say that Jesus extends this grace to all who desire to be forgiven including you. He forgives the vilest offender. He forgives what we might consider the smallest offender. It's all the same. He has the authority to forgive all sinners who go to him like the paralytic in genuine faith. No man No priest, no pope, no angel, no minister has the authority whatsoever to forgive. No man, no any other created thing can be your mediator. Only Christ can. Only he does this. Only Jesus merciful judge. Those are the first three characters that we must learn from in this narrative of Jesus' account of his authority to forgive sin. The next two characters have a lot to teach us. We're going to have to wait until next time. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you so much for your word. Again, thank you that we have this revelation. Thank you we have this eternal written record of the gospel and what it means to be forgiven. Thank you for forgiving us, Lord. Thank you so much. Lord, I have every reason to believe that there, is a, there are some here who do not confess their sins regularly. And that needs a change. I pray the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin, will illuminate the truth of your word to our minds so that we may realize when we do sin so we can confess it to you. May we confess these sins. May we be restored to you when our fellowship is broken with you. Not for our sake, not for anyone else's sake, but for your sake, Lord. Because everything we do, everything we desire, everything that we pursue, we know should be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.